Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is J.F. Martel. Some practical matters to start. First, this is the last episode of this, our fifth season. Fear not, we will be back on the digital air on September 13th with the first of a whole new series of episodes. I want to take this opportunity to thank all our listeners for making this season a success. In particular, I'd like to extend a very special thanks to our Patreon supporters, without whom Weird Studies would remain adrift in the desolate ghost realm of the unmanifested. If you like what you hear today, consider becoming a patron by going to weirdstudies.com and looking at our four tiers of support. Second, I am hard at work developing a new neurolearning course that will run through September and October. It's called Art in the Age of Artificial Intelligence and constitutes an attempt on my part, and on yours if you join me, to think about the role of art and artists in the unprecedented era we now find ourselves slipping into. The course is not yet ready for enrollment, but I will put out a quick announcement on this stream as soon as it is. I hope you'll consider signing up. All right. Every year, the photographer and writer Shannon Taggart organizes a symposium in Lilydale, New York, the nerve center of spiritualism. Shannon's long-standing and fascinating relationship with that movement, which led to the publication of her magnificent book Seance, was the topic of episode 113 of this show, recorded with her at the end of 2021. A new edition of the book was recently released by L'Atelier Editions, by the way. It is truly one of the great photography books, and I urge you to get a copy and find out why I'm saying that. For Shannon, the real power of spiritualism has less to do with the movement's central claim that the dead can communicate with the living than with the fact that spiritualist thought, in its bold embrace of the weird, and here I'm quoting Shannon, attests to the metaphysical and visionary record of humanity. Lilydale, she continues, is a testament to the richness and strangeness of our lived experience. Thankfully, it still stands as a sanctuary for modern seekers such as myself. End quote. Those words come from Shannon's very generous introduction to the conversation you're about to hear, which we recorded live in Lilydale on the opening night of the Science of Things Spiritual Symposium, held on July 27, 2023. For several years now, Shannon has been inviting like-minded seekers to Lilydale to explore the borderlands of art, science, religion, and the paranormal. I speak for both Phil and myself when I say that this year's edition, the first either of us attends, was a magical event easily one of the most stimulating and inspiring conferences of our lives, and Phil has attended quite a few conferences in his academic career. If opening up a space for the richness and strangeness of our lived experience is Shannon's goal, she has succeeded admirably. Kudos to all the speakers and participants for their marvelous engagement. Thanks also, of course, to Shannon, as well as her endlessly supportive husband, Ralph, and all the good people of Lilydale for being such wonderful hosts. In our opening talk in the town's historic fire hall, 
Phil and I decided to discuss a little-known entry in the annals of psychical literature, Frederick Meyer's autobiographical sketch, Fragments of Inner Life. Aside from the fact that the title weirdly echoes Arthur Mackin's A Fragment of Life, discussed just two episodes ago, this essay called to us because it encapsulates the promise and the peril of spiritual seeking in a scientific age. It also has tremendous historical relevance, since Myers was a founding member of the Society for Psychical Research and an important figure in the early decades of spiritualism. Though a poet and a classicist first, Myers shared in the breathless scientific optimism of his time. He recognized that Darwin's century had brought forth, quote, a flood tide of materialism that threatened to reduce all spiritual facts to physiological phenomena. But he also truly believed that science was poised to vindicate humanity's deepest religious aspirations. He boasted proudly, I have been one of the central group concerned in a great endeavor, the endeavor to pierce by scientific methods the world-old, never-penetrated veil. Was Myers right to hope for a science of things spiritual? This is a question that's been dogging us on Weird Studies for five years. Shannon Taggart's symposium was the perfect occasion to discuss it in earnest. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Hello, everyone. And, uh, well, welcome to Lilydale. We've been here for about 24 hours now, I think. Yeah. It's a magical place, I'm sure you've noticed. <laughs> Sometimes I have the feeling that um, Lilydale, the assembly, should sue John Crowley for plagiarism. Yeah. <laughs> if you're familiar with John Crowley's fiction, you'll know what I mean. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're going to be talking tonight. We're going to be improvising something. Yeah. Uh, and Phil has a gambit, so... You know, you know how I like a gambit. Yeah. So I was preparing for this talk, which is about Frederick Myers um, and uh, his essay, Fragments of an Inner Life, which was published, pos published posthumously uh, and is a remarkably personal uh, account of his inner life. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's, an, it's a marvelous record of a first-rate thinker, an intellectual scientist, classicist, poet, um, and psychical researcher, one of the founders of the Society for Psychical Research. And in preparing for today, I stumbled upon a quote that I wrote down in a totally different context and completely forgot about, but it was a wonderful little synchronicity that I encountered it because I think it offers a kind of a neat way into the topic. So this is Alan Bennett, and Alan Bennett writes, the best moments in reading are when you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things, which you had thought special and particular to you. Now here it is, set down by someone else, 
a person you have never met, someone even who is long dead, and it is as if a hand has come out and taken yours. And I love that. And it expresses something about art that has always been very important to me, a feeling of empathy, a feeling that one is not perhaps as alone in this world as one might have supposed. Uh, when you read a novelist or a poet or see a painting, listen to a piece of music that somehow expresses some inner state that you had thought was yours alone and utterly incommunicable, and you find it here before you, communicated. It's, I mean, the emotion that I have is always one of gratitude, almost tearful gratitude at being understood. And yet, this is somebody perhaps long dead who understands me, who somehow is sort of in my mind, right? Well, this got me thinking about Frederick Myers because Myers, as we will discuss, had a life in which several worldviews came and went. Uh, several worldviews were built up and then collapsed on him. The first being a kind of a, a hardcore Hellenism. He was a classic scholar um, who was drunk with the words of Sappho and Plato and other classical authors. Somebody. Uh, Myers is somebody for whom these writers were as real or even realer than actual flesh and blood people walking around. But that collapsed on him. And he found himself uh, becoming a Christian, being inducted into a certain sect of Christianity, uh, an intensely emotional kind of Christianity one was given to understand. And then that collapsed on him, and he found himself for a while as an atheist. And that collapsed on him, and what was left was spiritualism, and particularly the scientific research into spiritualism of the sort that he conducted in the Psych Society for Psychical Research. And so Fragments of an Inner Life is a remarkable testament to somebody who uh, had spent his entire life, um, as he says, uh, he, he writes, my history has been that of a soul struggling into the conviction of its own existence. A very succinct way of phrasing something that perhaps any number of us might relate to. The feeling that, like, I, I feel like there's a soul in there somewhere. How do I know? How can I know? And if it's real, what do I make of that fact? What do I do with it? Right? And Myers had the either fortune or misfortune of living in that first generation post-Darwin, where suddenly there's a feeling of the omnipotence and inescapability of materialist science and the collapse of all matters of soul or spirit to mechanism and a more or less automatic and unconscious or mindless process. And this piece, Fragments of an Inner Life, is a story of somebody who broke out of prison. It's a jailbreak story. Much like uh, the similarly named Fragments of Life by Arthur Mackin that we just recently did a show on. 
And the thing about these kinds of jailbreaks from this sort of epistemic lockdown is the question of like, what's, what's, the, what's the file that's gonna be smuggled in? You know what I mean? Like when I was a kid watching TV in the 70s, it seems like every time somebody was in jail, somebody would like bake a cake and put a file <laughs> in the cake. I feel like that doesn't happen as much anymore. They caught on to that one. Yeah, they caught on. But like the question is like, what's the file that was smuggled into the prison that Myers found himself incarcerated in? And the file was a seance that he attended in 1873. Now, Myers doesn't tell us this in Fragments of an Inner Life. This is an anecdote told by Alan Galt, who wrote uh, an authoritative history of the formation and conduct of the Society for Psychical Research. But apparently, in this first seance that Myers attended, quote, a big hairy hand came down from the ceiling. <laughs> Myers seized it in both of his. It diminished in size until it resembled a baby's hand and finally melted in his grasp. Now, I like that because for one thing, it's really fucking weird. <laughs> it's really weird. But also, I love the resonance with that quote of Bennett's that I started with. It is as if a hand had come out and taken yours. And Bennett is talking about that experience of empathy that we can have with a work of art. This uncanny, indeed supernatural feeling of being understood in a level of intimacy you never thought possible. And I wanted to juxtapose that to another kind of hand which is this hairy hand materializing out of nothing that Myers grasped, and this was the hand that pulled him out of hell. Yeah. 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 So, what do you make of that? Are you sure you're finished? <laughs> that was For fantastic. <laughs> I love that. I love it because I love the way that, it's, first of all, yeah, the, the hairy hand coming into this world and reaching out for him is a beautiful, potent symbol um, coming as if in answer to his, to his plea. I remember at one point in his text, he basically says that he was grabbing the universe by the, lap, the, by the lapels and saying, like, I will not go away until you bless yes. me, you know? Yes. Um, and uh, he was really in a state of absolute despair when he was at his most radically agnostic phase, stage, you know. And so the hand reaching out, of course, has tremendous symbolic value, but I love the way it, that story, that anecdote, weirds the Bennett quote you read. Because there's something about reading, as you were saying in your introduction there, uh, there's something about reading which is not at all metaphorically weird. Um, the, the, our invention of these you know, little symbolic systems, alphabets and whatnot, languages, and that's how we record these texts and then are able through time to communicate, to reach out to one another. I think if you really give it some thought, it's one of those ideas of an ordinary thing that the more you think of it, the more extraordinary it becomes. How strange it is to be able to, um, to communicate almost telepathically through literature, yeah. right? Um, and you really get a sense of that when Myers is talking about his love of the classics. Um, 
reminds me of something that Donna Tartt writes that we were discussing recently in, uh, in her book, The Secret History, where she talks about, you know, there's, there's knowing, there's reading the ancient Greek classics, and then there's learning the Greek language. And to learn the language and to read these classics in the original language, as Myers did, he's constantly coming up with new, like, Greek neologisms or, like, quoting from all kinds of sources. He's, he's heavily steeped in the classics. When you learn these languages and <clears throat> immerse yourself in those literatures, there is a kind of time travel happening there, a kind of reaching out through the veil. Um, I guess Myers wasn't satisfied with that, though. <laughs> he needed the hairy hand coming down from the ceiling, and I understand that. But, uh, but I, yeah, I love that juxtaposition of that quote and that anecdote. Um, one thing that I find very inspiring about Frederick Myers, so as Phil mentioned, he was one of the founders of the uh, Society for Psychical Research in England, um, and uh, he, he was someone who was, he was a poet, he was a, a classicist. Uh, one of the things I admire about him is his absolute devotion to the promise of science, right? Yeah. And uh, he really belongs to an era where science was doing things it's not really doing anymore, or at least thought, science was thought to be able to do things that we've maybe cynically, maybe in an unwarranted way, uh, we have stopped to believe it can do. Um, because maybe our, our vision of science has narrowed. Maybe our sense of what constitutes science has narrowed. Um, there's a, uh, and, and just as by way of trying to illustrate the spirit of his, of his age, because he certainly wasn't alone in this, you know, Henry Sidgwick, uh, um, uh, William James here in the US, uh, there were lots of people who thought that science could answer the age-old questions raised by spiritual matters, the questions of philosophy, the questions of religion. They really thought that, that, that science would be able to pierce the veil, and that's actually the term that, that uh, Myers used. It's also the term that Arthur Mackin used in this quote that I'm gonna read you from the book, The Great God Pan. Um, and some of you may have read The Great God Pan. It's essentially a work of weird fiction um, in which a scientific experiment ends up uh, allowing a young girl um, to see through the veil uh, with, of course, dire consequences because it's a story of weird horror. But there's a moment at the beginning uh, where one of the characters, the scientist who will perform this experiment on this poor girl, um, is trying to convince his friend that this is perfectly safe, everything will go fine, it will go well, and he's trying to explicate the kind of metaphysics behind his experiment. And what he says is this. Look about you, Clark. You see the mountain and hill following after hill as wave on wave. You see the woods and orchard, the fields of ripe corn, and the meadows reaching to the reed beds by the river. You see me standing here beside you and hear my voice. But I tell you that all these things, yes, from that star that has just shone out in the sky to the solid ground beneath our feet, I say that all these are but dreams and shadows, the shadows that hide the real world from our eyes. There is a real world, but it is beyond this glamour and this vision, beyond these chases and arras, dreams and a career, beyond, beyond them as beyond a veil. I do not know whether any human being has ever lifted that veil, but I do know, Clark, that you and I shall see it lifted this very night from before another's eyes. You may think this all strange nonsense. It may be strange, but it is true, and the ancients knew what lifting the veil me means. They called it seeing the god Pan. 
Pan is the god whose name in Greek means all. So Pan has a kind of like uh, a connotation of the, the, the strange imminence of life and nature and its most uh, eldritch kind of conception. And what I like about that though is that you read this as weird fiction now, but here Macken is expressing a sentiment, a feeling, a, a, a conviction about science that was widely shared by many men and women of his generation. Um, and Myers was one of these people. He says, I believe, this is Myers now, I believe then that science is now succeeding in penetrating certain cosmical facts which he has not reached until now. The first, of course, is the fact of man's survival of death. The second is the registration in the universe of every past scene and thought. And so Myers truly believed that the science he was practicing with his colleagues at the Society of Psychical Research was finally giving real scientific answers to these age-old questions concerning death, the immortality of the soul, and whatnot. Today, I think most of us would think that he was probably overestimating his science. But what do we mean by science? Why did he say what he said? Why did he believe what he believed? I think that it's an interesting thing. I think there's been an epistemic shift in our way of thinking about reality in general which kind of blindsights us. It kind of blinds us to what these people were experiencing and finding in their work. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think about like what, what happens to scientists who want to ask those questions. I mean, I get the impression, although I'm hardly an expert in the intellectual history of the Society for Psychical Research, but I get the impression that there was no shortage of um, debunker types. Uh, James tees off on them amusingly in his confession, William James, that is to say, in his Confessions of a Psychical Researcher, uh, talking about people who um, are very recognizable among professional debunkers of the Mick West, Stephen Greenstreet type, um, to mention a couple of names from the UFO world. Um, so perhaps, Myers and his associates in the SPR would have been treated as ungently as people like Dean Radin or um, uh, Rupert Sheldrake are, uh, are, are treated these days. But it, I, I feel as if, generally speaking, people don't think of life after death as something be that belongs to the range of questions answerable by science at all yeah. in this day and age. I mean, part of it is, I think, an unspoken dogma that uh, of the, um, what do I like to say, the loneliness of the human intellect. And the idea that the only kind, I mean, there's, we, we might grudgingly acknowledge some kind of intelligence, maybe not sentience, but at least some kind of intelligence in animals. And I mean, like, if you've read uh, Mama's Last Hug uh, by, oh, what is his name? Um, Franz de Waal is an animal researcher, chimpanzee researcher from Europe. Um, you can see him also struggling with um, barely suppressed impatience against uh, science, science, I don't want to say scientific, maybe scientistic dogma, um, that animals can't possibly have emotions or have the kind of inner experience and inner life that human beings can have. The same, and that's an issue in, the, in animal sciences, but like in talking about UFOs, 
why are there some people who will go to their grave? It doesn't matter what you show. They'll, they'll say, oh, if, uh, I'll believe in UFOs if one lands on the White House lawn. No, they won't. No, they fucking won't. There will always be a reason not to. And, and I, I think one very strong reason is the idea that there can be no intelligence like ours. Yeah. That we won't concede to any other kind of, I'm not even gonna say other entity, just any phenomenon in the universe, the interiority that we enjoy. And so the idea of um, mind at large in the universe, which will occur to you pretty quickly if you're thinking about spirits, the survival of spirit or soul, whatever we want to call it after death, um, then all of a sudden, uh, that sense of a human intellect is unmoored from a physical body. It's getting a little weird, right? We don't like that idea. And at least I feel it's like a human intelligence, because I think that there are, there are kind of degrees here, mm. the most radical of which would be like the ultra-materialist position, right? That there's simply nothing that's not material. Then there are the people which on the can, other Which end. can lead to a, a, a position like Daniel Dennett's that you're not actually conscious. Right. The con consciousness is simply an illusion. I'm very proud to say I'm quoting Daniel Dennett tomorrow favorably, but taking him out of context, of course. <laughs> um, so, yes, but, but like, let's look at this. This is an actually an interesting question because <clears throat> um, Myers was, he coined the term telepathy. Um, he, um, and in, in his book, Human Personality and Its Survival After Bodily Death, he argues that um, he's very soft compared to others, but he's basically arguing that all of these spirit manifestations are um, uh, examples of a single phenomena that he reduces to telepathy, which essentially preserves the, anthropi the anthropic uh, the, monopoly, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, there's another thinker um, whose name was um, Alfred Schrenk Notzing, I believe. Did I get that right, Shannon? Albert, Albert Schrenk Notzing. Yeah, um, so I always forget names. Um, who uh, I know for a fact was um, very, very dismissive of the claims of the mediums he was working with. The mediums were claiming they were communicating with spirits. He said that's bunk. They're basically using untapped psychic abilities, or like psychic abilities that most of us have not tapped, and they are interpreting them as others because again, there's that fear that you're mentioning, Phil, the fear of allowing others into this world, yeah. into our epistemic framework. Like we just can't <laughs> tolerate the presence of non-human intelligence. Not only letting others into this world, but also letting this intelligence into the world. Yeah. Right. Right. Through the survival of, of yes. soul after death yes. and so on. It goes both but, ways. Yeah. But, but I would say that you could be an exclusive humanist and be a proponent of psychic phenomena. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you could still be an exclusive humanist and believe in the paranormal. It's the, the trouble is always, as we've been kind of talking about constantly recently, the trouble is always accepting others that aren't human that aren't reducible to the mentations of our heads, of our, of our, whether we call them our minds or our souls or whatever. I find that that's the, where the real problem is. 
And I think that Myers is actually working towards a kind of humanism, ultimately, that would allow one to say, well, I believe in spirit communication. I just don't believe it's about spirits. I believe it's about untapped psychic powers in the human mind. It's interesting in fragments of inner life, you can see through this very personal kind of writing. At the beginning, he says like, I mean, he wrote this for posthumous publication. He wrote this so that it was published only for in a couple of dozen copies sent to very close friends, most of them fellow members of the SPR, uh, with instructions that they weren't to be published until after his death. Um, and so he says early on, he's like, this is going to be written in a very personal style, but like... Um, beautifully written in a personal style. Was that? It's very beautifully written. Beautifully written in a personal style. So it's quite different from, you know, his, uh, from his sort of publish, his, uh, his things that he arranged to have published during his lifetime. Um, something that comes through very clearly is a sense of him repeatedly feeling a noose tightening around his neck and trying to wiggle his way out of it. And towards the end, he's talking about events as recently as 1887, which is only about five years before he wrote this. He talks about a kind of last crisis of doubt. And this is after, I mean, this is uh, five years after the formation of the SPR. This is some 15 years after his, um, uh, his, his uh, experience with the hairy hand descending from the ceiling. Um, and still, he finds himself haunted and dogged by doubts. And, and that noose, that feeling of constriction, of claustrophobia, comes from the feeling of like, is that, is the Peggy Lee question, as, as uh, Charles Taylor likes to say, is that all there is? Yeah. Is this it? Uh, is death the end? Um, are the various hopes for life after death that are sparked by psychical research, the seeming evidence for the uh, survival of the soul after death, are these merely projections of um, perhaps a mysterious aspect of our mental functioning, but a noble aspect of our mental functioning that it, it belongs to this life and no other. And in the end, he sort of says, well, it was when Ed, Ed, um, Edmund Gurney um, delivered a message to me post-mortem that finally delivered me my doubts. This is not exactly what you might call a scientific finding. In this very personal piece of writing, as much as this is the autobiography of somebody who, among other things, is a scientist, and for whom scientific research is um, sine qua non, of, like it's the necessary thing in order to ask and answer the question he wants to ask. Even at the very end, though, there's still a sort of sense of like, it's about revelation. I mean, that seemed, that's a word I'm sure he would have found intolerably vulgar to use in connection with his own project. But what delivers him finally from that last tightening of the noose is posthumous communication from a very close friend. Yeah. Um, and the kind of thing that cannot possibly be a scientific datum, an unrepeatable event, an event whose significance is a function of not its occurrence in a statistical sequence or some, um, uh, or like a data set or something, but a human-to-human -human connection, a hand reaching out and mm. grasping his own. 
This is, this is super interesting because it's reminding me of, um, so I'll get to what you were saying. Gabriel Marcel, the French existentialist philosopher, um, wrote beautifully about the distinction between problems and mysteries. I think we've brought these, this up on the show before, but um, it's very simple. A, a problem is, doesn't concern you. A problem, two plus two equals question mark, is something you might find an answer to, and um, your life will remain relatively unchanged afterwards. Uh, a mystery, like what happens after death, is a problem that consumes you, that involves you, uh, and it's a problem that's not a problem until you're concerned, right? It's a problem that concerns you because you've lost someone you love, as uh, Myers did. He lost someone he loved very much. Um, or because you are facing death yourself. So Marcel stresses the importance of maintaining this distinction between problems and mysteries because mysteries are not soluble in the same way. Mysteries involve you, therefore you can't get out of them to see them as problems. And one of the tendencies in science, in scientism I should say probably, is to turn mysteries into problems. And I would say, I would, I would put that as a critique of certain uh, factions, let's say, within the Society for Cycle Research is that what they were trying to do, and I, it's perfectly understandable, because at that time, science, the, the potential of science really felt limitless in the late 19th century. So thoroughly had science transformed the world and would continue to do so. So I'm not blaming them for it, but the tendency to reduce these mysteries or transform them into problems, um, I think, uh, uh, created a weir weird um, a challenge for those scientists who found, as Myers did, personal satisfaction, personal answers. So what happens is that in this text, Myers comes to the conclusion that he has, to his satisfaction, answered the question. He knows that he will go on. He knows that we go on after death. Suddenly, the, the mystery having, it hasn't been solved because none of the questions of life have, have been answered. All, all that he feels is that there's a continuation of life in some form we can't understand. How do you keep doing the often boring work of scientific research once you've answered the question for yourself satisfactorily? The problematic aspect of the mystery is gone. What's left is simply the mystery. So maybe one of the reasons why science hasn't progressed as much as it could have in these domains is because these are not, these questions that science asks or that we ask ourselves with regard to existence and death and all those fundamental realities, these questions are on the order of mystery. And they're questions that each of us has to explore and answer for ourselves. Um, and so once a scientist finds an answer, they drop out of the race to a certain extent. Hmm. The, the, the investment lessens because they, what you see is that the mystery in a way subsumes and transcends all the problems. Do you understand, does that make sense? Sure. <laughs> so long as you have no follow-up questions. <laughs> Please do, shoot at me a question. No, I was just actually. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm going to. Uh, I'm gonna confess that I kind of zoned out at the end of that. Oh. <laughs> this happens sometimes. This is how the sausage is made, people. This sometimes or not made. This sometimes happens when we're recording the show. We edit that stuff out. 
This is the value added of going to a Weird Studies live show, is you get to see me like, wait, what? But I wanted to change the subject anyway. Please. <laughs> so, something that interests me about this is the narrative of somebody who has multiple worldviews collapse out from under him. And I found a very great degree of fellow feeling in reading this. Like, I felt a lot of sympathy with the story that Myers is telling. And all that stuff I was just saying about that feeling, that feeling of a noose tightening around your neck, the feeling that highly respected and even revered intellectual figures, you know, intellectual figures who have nourished you and formed your worldview, that that worldview actually ends up feeling like a straitjacket. It feels like it's uh, tightening around you, preventing you from any kind of freedom of motion. I, 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 I dig that. I know that feeling. Or the feeling of insufficiency that, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places, like you're looking for some kind of openness or freedom, some kind of blue sky feeling of freedom in something, and that thing just won't give it to you. This is, a, this is something that he's very articulate about. So he, in his story, he starts with talking about his childhood and um, the formative moment when he's like six years old and he sees a mole crushed beneath the wheel of a carriage and he's upset and he asks his mother, oh, will the mole go to heaven? And the mother says, and it was like, I guess a conventional answer for the time would have been like, well, no, moles don't have souls. So no, they don't. So that, that animal is just dead. And this like horrified him deeply. The idea of death just being the end, like that's it struck him with an existential horror that he says like as much as he loved his father when his father died it did not horrify him more than the idea of just annihilation right so he establishes that right at the beginning as a kind of um as a, the, the the seed for everything that happens subsequently but then what happens subsequently is he becomes a classicist he goes to cambridge and um becomes a lecturer in classics there and he talks about this kind of almost drunkenness that he felt in the texts, the, the, in the old texts. Um, and he tells a story of how he uh, visits Greece and in this moment, uh, this apotheosis of, of his, of his Philhellenism, his, his love of ancient Greece, he finds it hollow, it, it collapses out from under him. Whatever more, whatever faculty acts more that he wants from a worldview that can satisfy that terror of nihility, that terror of nothingness that he felt as a small child, like realizing that, nope, this isn't gonna do it. This isn't gonna get me there. And he tells this story. For gazing thence on Delos and on the Cyclades, and on those straits and channels of purple sea, I felt that nowise could I come closer still, never more intimately than thus could embrace that vanished beauty. Alas, for an ideal which roots itself in the past, that longing cannot be allayed. 
It feels, quote, the insatiability which attends all natural passions as their inevitable punishment. That's a quote, not sure where it's from. Uh, quote within the quote. For it is an unnatural passion. The world rose, rolls onward, not backward, and men must set their hearts on what lies before. I left Greece with such a sadness as I have known in some twilight sculpture gallery when I have pressed my face for the last time to the unanswering marble and turned to go with eyes, eyes tear brimming and a bittersweet passion of regret. Oh, how I love that. The writing, it's so beautiful, but so beautifully expressing this terrible feeling of like, you know, it's as if it's like, it reminds me of Orpheus, the Orpheus legend, when Orpheus looks back at Eurydice and realizes, oh shit, he's lost her forever. And he reaches out to grasp her. This is an Ovid, and she vanishes like smoke in his arms. Um, I actually wrote something about a similar feeling that I had. This is uh, really pretentious, but I'm gonna read a passage that I wrote in my book, Dig, <laughs> Sound and Music and Hip Culture. This is a chapter I wrote on these acetates that John Holmes, John Clellan Holmes, not a very well-known nowadays uh, literary figure, kind of one of the beats, the squarest of the beats. Um, he had an ac old-fashioned acetate cutter. It's what he had before recordable tape. And he recorded a bunch of acetates of him and Ginsburg and Kerouac and their friends getting drunk and uh, trying to improvise free-form jazz. And since none of them could carry a tune in a paper bag, the results were amusing. Um, but also, there's this kind of fascinating... I was sort of obsessed with these things because it made me feel like at last, the, you know, like you read, if you're into the beats, you know, you read On the Road or Visions of Cody or whatever, and you're like, oh, I'm getting close, I'm getting close to that current of life that they, you know, that was their whole thing, to actually capture a current of life in prose, to do what prose has never done before, at least in their way of thinking, to actually capture something of this moving current of life. And yet, I kept feeling, and, and listening to these recordings, like, you could almost convince yourself that you were, you were, you were there, you're actually there, participating in this long dead scene, but nope, at the end of the day, you're just some asshole listening to some recordings. <laughs> and so this is what I wrote. I might imagine myself a visitor at Holmes parties. The auditory presence of these mythic figures stands in for the dream of living in their company. But within the auditory geography of the Holmes acetates, I feel something that I don't in the beats more crafted autobiographical fictions Boredom. Like a guest at one of Holmes' parties, I sit listening to the other guests chatting and cutting up, singing along with the records, drumming their fingers in time to the music. I'm bored, though, because I'm not really there. Whatever moving vector of social energy that is galvanizing their attention as it passes from one to the other misses me. I can hear the intimate details of their interactions, but I can't touch or move anything. I'm a ghost. Stern and Kittler have written of how often people have heard recordings and imagined themselves in the company of the dead, but here it's just as easy to feel that I'm the one that died. And when I read that passage of Myers, I'm like, I know what you're talking about. You know, that feeling of just sort of like, yeah, you're consorting with the ghosts, the shades of uh, an, a glorious past, 
but it's also like you're the one that's dead. You're, you're the one that's not really present. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think this is where I kind of bounce off of Meyer's text about as much as I love the writing. It's that it seems like these disillusionments have to do with, again, I'm sorry, I'm going to harp on the part you zoned out for. Um, the, the, uh, the disillusionment has to do with, with a tendency in him from the beginning to require an answer to a problem. And whatever can't furnish the answer. Like, for example, he goes from Hellenism to Christianity. Christianity asks me too much. I need to believe in too many things. I need firm answers. I need an answer. And, and so all the wonders and beauties of the ancient pagan world crumble to ashes before him because they cannot provide this thing. They can't answer for the mole. It's like that moment in, in PKD where, you know, uh, horse lover's fat's friend oh, says when he gets to heaven, he's going he's, like, to, he, this guy says, I'm keeping my dead cat in a freezer so that when I get to heaven, I can hold him up by the tail and say, explain this, motherfucker, <laughs> to God. <laughs> and he can't get over the mole. And so all of these um, chases and heiress, dreams in a career, as uh, Mackin puts it, uh, of trying to answer, everything falls to nothing because what he requires is something that no one will ever give you. And I, I do believe that in the end, mm. I've answered to my satisfaction, you know, I've, I've solved the problem to my satisfaction, to me rings hollow because he hasn't answered anything to me. Like, we, I don't think that, that he knows any more than any of us does what is going on in this world. And maybe um, as, as productive as that was, because it produced all this work for the, the Society of Cycle Research. I felt melancholy reading his text. I felt like, how could you lose sight of the tremendous beauty of the ancient world? How could it just crumble before you? Now, it didn't quite do that. He kept quoting classicists until, his, until the end of his life. Right. Um, and he does also say that he thinks that science is basically a continuation of Christianity, or that the science that he's envisioning would be like basically just the translation of Christ's message into a science, which itself is an interesting topic because that, and that has legs. That's an idea that goes way back to the Middle Ages. But um, I feel, reading the text, I feel, um, yeah, it, it, felt, it filled me with melancholy, with a kind of like, um, why not just Dig not knowing, man. <laughs> you know, like yeah, I know it's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, because he talks about how he for a while embraces this. He doesn't characterize it very much, but it seems like a somewhat charismatic and very heart-based kind of Christianity. And then he sort of is talking about how like, but he needs evidence. Yeah. And so much, and there is a whole thing in this period of like, it's not just Myers. Um, Alistair Crowley also announces um, a kind, uh, you know, the, the, the aim of, what does he say? The method of science, the aim of religion. You know, various attempts to understand religion on scientific footing. Um, and at the heart of that, and I, and I agree with you, that feeling of like, oh man, like, why evidence? Why did you need 
evidence. Is yeah. evidence the thing that you ask for in the face of the mole crushed beneath the wagon wheel? Well, he did, apparently, you yeah. know? And so like, but this is interesting. Okay, so like, I don't feel that myself, like right. in my own life. I do have a lot of fellow feeling in the sort of sense of like that, that, that street jacket noose tightening around your neck feeling and the sort of sense of like, if I can't figure out a way out of this, I am doomed to be stuck in this jail forever. Right. But you know, I was talking about like the, the file smugged, smuggled into jail in the cake. Like the metaphor we use all the time on the show is the white crow. This is a line from William James, uh, I forget which essay, I think it's the, an, an earlier essay on psychical research than the one that I was mentioned before. Um, where he says, if you want to, um, if you want to disprove the notion that all crows are black, you don't need to say that no crows are black. You just need to find one white crow. And James said, you know, Lenora Piper, famous medium, was my white crow because she uh, was able to tell him things about himself that no other person could possibly have known. Um, and whether you want to call that evidence or whether you just want to call that like a stone shied through this plate glass window of your former certitudes, whatever you like. But um, that feeling of the one and done, like I saw it, now I know, that's important to me. Yeah. After and and then I like for me what I went looking for after like my moment like that was not evidence, not replicability, not a data set. It's revelation. But, what's that? Revelation was the word you used earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And some, I mean, certainly some kind of conceptual framework for revelation. Because these things strike you like a bolt of lightning. And, you know, you might at least ask, what the fuck was that? <laughs> or it's like, it was lightning. Well, what's lightning? <laughs> right? There's always, um, okay, so I'm sort of playing at both sides. Like, there's always an element of investigation when you are comfortably inhabiting a worldview and then blammo, it all falls apart, and now what? But to be looking for evidence is a very particular modality of that, and that's what he felt he needed, and, and that is what precipitated his career psychical research. Mm -hmm. But if I understand you correctly, you're sort of saying, it, yeah, but that mode of investigation also is sort of blinding him to things that are just like kind of sitting right there, like the, the glories of the classical past. Yeah. Like he can't, accept that, he can't yeah. accept that within a frame of what we might call evidence for something. Well, we could compare, we could compare Myers's basic temperament to someone like William James, whom I think, I think it's a polar kind of difference because with James, there is a, an interest in knowledge, a curiosity, but also a deep kind of assurance within himself that the mysteries will outstrip all the knowledge. And it's just a kind of a, an ability, it's like a, what Keats called negative capability, a kind of 
a capacity to dwell in uncertainty and to be able to live there, you know? Um, in the talk I'm doing tomorrow morning, there's a moment where I'm like, the way I put it was that the argument I'm making isn't placing magic over science or magic above science. What it's doing, it's slipping magic under science so that science can continue with all of its promise and power but resting on a bed of magic that we just simply have to recognize is, is the case. And I'll explain what magic means tomorrow, but um, it doesn't mean casting spells necessarily. It does not mean that. Um, but uh, the, the idea is that in Myers, I find an example of a kind of classic Prometheanism, Prometheanism um, that was kind of endemic to, to that time and still is in many ways. Uh, and I associate it with an exclusive humanism, that the answers have to come on our terms. The answer, yeah. has, to, the, the answer has to resolve the riddle of the mole. Yeah. And, that, um, and I don't think James ever fooled himself into thinking such a thing would ever happen. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right about that. No, the, the, the focus on evidence has to do with like getting some things sorted, getting th some things squared away. Yeah, so that you don't have to think about it anymore. Like a thing about a problem as opposed to a mystery. A problem, once you've solved it, you don't have to think about it anymore. Right. Once you've solved the, the riddle of two plus three equals five, well, you just don't have to think about that anymore. It becomes but a mystery, a, a matter, the more you explore yeah, it, the I more think. you have to think about it. Yeah. Because the mystery is the thing that pulls you into thought. It is what motivates and animates thought. And it's thought as a spiral that deepens and, and, and that... that, that that, that deepens all the time. It's just simply a kind of imminent process of ever deepening. You know, Heidegger wrote beautifully about the mystery of thought and the thought of mystery. So I think that as much as I want to champion, because I have, I, I am a huge, like I think that parapsychology should be um, uh, brought back online as a major endeavor. I believe that uh, scientific investigation into all this stuff, whether it's UFOs or Sasquatch or um, psi, psi phenomena or spirit communication, I think that there's great uh, untapped potential there for scientific research. At the same time, I think that at some point we'll have to recognize that we can't explain science scientifically. We can't explain causality by coming up with a cause for it. At some point, things bottom out in an absolute mystery. And our science can be pursued within that perspective while remaining in intimate touch with the mystery that not only surrounds us, but kind of inhabits us mm. all. That's beautifully expressed. That's that that really good. Um, I mean, and to, you know, to, to, to bring that rather poetically expressed idea um, down to a rather more prosaic level, I mean, just logically speaking, um, the kinds of questions it is given to science to ask do not include the basic metaphysical questions that underwrite science itself. Right. Uh, there's um, a passage early in William James' Principles of Psychology where he, he says, uh, you know, you can talk about the distinction between science and religion by whether you put a purpose, uh, a telos, in it. Put a, put a purpose in the middle of the universe, however it is you're trying to understand the universe, you have a religion. Um, and if you don't, uh, you have a science. But he said, the, um, or maybe he didn't say it, I'm saying it. <laughs> <laughs> Own it, man. 
take but it. the question it's yours. is there a purpose to all this or not is not itself a scientific question no um, it's not a question that can be answered with the tools of science so your idea that science itself rests upon a mystery, that it dances upon a mystery, perhaps, is a beautiful idea. I think that that is, in fact, a spirit of science that some scientists do, in fact, embrace. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Now, I'm going to sort of flip it up on you a little bit, or try to. Maybe I won't. Maybe I won't succeed. But it seems to me that one outcome of this sort of... Um, I, mean, I like that you brought Keats' um, negative capability into this line that was quoted as like, you know, abiding in is it abiding in mystery without an irritable reaching for uh, for fact and reason for fact and reason, um, and with uh, perhaps to be a little unfair to Myers, you get the feeling that his methodology was to abide in mystery and then to reach irritably for fact and reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to do both, yeah. um, but the thing is that. That motion of mind and perhaps soul is something that bears fruit spiritually, that it opens up the possibility of something that seems very much a product of this first generation after Darwin, this particular time where people are really trying to figure out like what becomes of religion, or indeed what becomes of the very idea of there being a point or uh, a purpose uh, in existence. Um, and it seems to me that one of the ways that that is expressed spiritually is in the idea that an investigation mm -hmm. becomes a spiritual practice. Well, that's what, that's what magic under science would permit. It's science practiced as a practice, science practiced in the spirit of mystery. And I think that, I mean, I was talking to Jacob Foster the other day, and he, I was going on about some, of, well, some tangentially related things, and he was like, well, there are plenty of scientists who think this way, you know, yeah. especially in physics, mathematics. Um, there are plenty of scientists who are tuned in to this undercurrent of the weird that undergirds and sustains the scientific endeavor. So this is why I hold William James up as such a beautiful model of scientific research, because he was a thorough, rigorous scientist who nevertheless had always one foot, you know, across the veil. Couldn't see what was across, his foot was there, but he couldn't, he couldn't see. <laughs> like, so, like, uh, and, and that, that gave a special, that's why today we still read his work. You know, yeah. and to be fair to Myers, I think there's much more to Myers. I think we're kind of strawmanning him a little bit right now because um, I think that he was a profound thinker, and I think he oh, came yeah. up with. I mean, I I would have liked to talk about his idea of subliminal self, which I think is brilliant. Um, he he um, he did not coin, but he used the word imaginal before uh, Henri Cormet ever did, um, and uh, he had some 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 wonderful ideas, um, and I think he was a deep thinker. But uh, yeah. I think that science can be a spiritual practice and perhaps should be a spiritual practice. Rudolf Steiner um, certainly saw scientific research practice within the confines or within the limits or the, the parameters of what we all kind of agree as science can be in itself a spiritual endeavor. Same with Goethe. This idea that science is innately a kind of spiritual endeavor to discover 
to uncover the um, layer upon layer, like just to, 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 to dig into, and to dig in your sense of the term, to dig the real, is very much, I think, at the root of the scientific project. Francis Bacon, you know, Galileo, goes all the way back. Science as M should be. As MF Doom says, dig the real, it's how the big ballers deal. <laughs> so I wanna, I, I, uh, I wanna loop it back to my gambit. Okay. Thinking about art, because we've been talking an awful lot about relationship of religion and science, which of course, of course we do, because we're talking about Frederick Myers. But where I started was that A-B comparison between that Alan Bennett, the, the hand reaching out for you, as an artistic or an aesthetic experience, and the Myers, like a literal hand reaching out for him. Something that interests me in, okay, right from the beginning in Myers' piece, he starts with a credo. Uh, two of the three things he, uh, major things he believes, and he springs the last one on us at the end. The last one is a belief in uh, progressive evolution, um, that uh, we are all part of a kind of super soul that is progressively evolving towards some infinitely distant point. Uh, and that is the purpose uh, that he sees at the heart of the universe. And however, we only get to that at the end. At the beginning, he says, the other two legs of his three-legged stool. I believe that we live after earthly death and that some of those who read these posthumous confidences may be among my companions in an unseen world. And then the second thing, I hold that all things thought and felt as well as all things done are somehow photographed imperishably upon the universe and that my whole past will probably lie open to those with whom I have to do. So he's talking about something that I've heard, you know, called like the Akashic record. Mm -hmm. The idea that every thought, every action um, is recorded, imprinted in the, in the, in the fabric of the universe itself. Um, Jeff Kripal, uh, who writes a, uh, a chapter on Myers and Authors of the Impossible, it's a fine book that I recommend to your attention. Um, he makes a lot of this idea as it's con consonant with his idea that we can understand paranormal experience as a text that in decoding we can transform into a text that we are writing. That's Kripal's probably his biggest idea. Um, and Meyer saw his life or anyone's life as a text being inscribed in the universe. So, although I, being a musician, I like to think of a phonographic metaphor, maybe something like uh, a groove being cut into a record. But regardless, thinking about Alan Bennett's as if a hand has come out and taken you, okay, we understand he's talking about something non-paranormal, art, right? Art, art isn't paranormal. Uh, there's a material thing, a novel, a poem, a painting, a piece of music, whatever. My talk tomorrow is called Art and the Paranormal. Yes. <laughs> and it's about how art is paranormal. Well, you see, I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, in that sorry, direction. Sorry. I'm like, and so, art is never paranormal. That <laughs> no is what, what I wish. anyone tells you. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, we don't have to strain our mind very hard to understand what Bennett is talking about. Maybe he's talking about it in a poetic way, but we understand like, oh yeah, I read the thing and I feel some sympathy, he experienced it, I experienced it, yeah, fine. That doesn't really tax our imagination, but there's a weird way you can take this. If, as Myers puts it, all things thought and felt as well as all things done are somehow photographed imperishably upon the universe, then you're not merely encountering and decoding a text 
the way we normally understand. You're encountering a trace of a subjectivity that lives again in the moment of an aesthetic encounter. This is really palpable in interpretive arts. Like, you know, I'm a classical musician. Um, like, there's a feeling you get when you're like, you're interpreting, like, you don't just play the notes on the page. Like, you have to give them life and sense and meaning. You have to give them a purpose. And you have to breathe life into them. And there's always a question, oh, is this just your own ideas that you're like imposing on the composer's intention or what, you know? And I've always had this completely unverifiable thought. I'm like, I know exactly what Brahms meant by this. I don't <laughs> always understand what Brahms meant, but I know what he meant here. He and I are on the same page. I have this sort of feeling. I mean, and it sounds incredibly arrogant. And I, and, and I would blush to even say it aloud, except I found Franklin Trickier, who at one point was a red-hot Marxist hermeneute. Uh, he was part of the, the uh, famous or notorious uh, Duke um, English department in the late 80s, early 90s. <laughs> And uh, towards the end of his life, he stopped teaching graduate students. Uh, he only taught undergrads, and he would only do classes in the mode of what he called a rhapsode, where he, he and the students would take turns speaking texts aloud and embodying them. And I don't have his text in front of me. It's uh, something that was published in the late lamented uh, academic scandal rag, Lingua Franca. And he called uh, Confessions of an Ex-Literary Critic. And he says, uh, we are possessed, we are mad, possessed by these texts. I read this text in the voice of its author. That is my radical and unverifiable claim. Oh, like and that. it sounds insane from a certain point of view, but I read it, I'm like, I know exactly Look, what you're talking about. There is a telepathy, there is a kind of weird thing where the text isn't the Akashic record, but it's the trace of the Akashic record. Yeah. And the artist is one who uses the text to get to the Akashic record. Yeah. If you think about the past as being, in some sense, preserved in some way, you can use quantum physics to justify it. You can use Bergsonian metaphysics, whatever way. If you think the past somehow, or Proust, right? Proust's whole fiction is about returning into a past that uh, acquires presence somehow. Then a text written in the past, let's say the description of a naval battle in the Aegean Sea in the, you know, the second century before our era, the, t the report, the, t the description of that battle is not just a representation of some abstract event. It's actually a trace of that real yeah. event. And in reading that text, you are actually or virtually accessing that event in the past. Yeah. It's kind of magical. And to think of it as telep telepathy makes only, I think that's just, the f that's just first base. There's so much going on in... Uh, in, uh, in art and literature if we see it as accessing a virtual world that is real without being physical. Yeah. Um, and, real in the yeah. sense that I can go there right now. Excuse me, everybody, I'm going to go and listen to Brahms' Third Symphony yeah, exactly. or whatever, right? Yeah. Machiavelli has this great line somewhere about reading the classics where he talks about the feeling of putting on finery, putting on yeah. his robes, going to the court of the ancients to dwell with them. Yeah. And he sp speaks of it as like, it's a place that he goes. And yeah. again, I read that and I'm like, I know exactly what you're talking about. That place is real, not material. 
but it's real. And that's where we're going now, isn't it, Phil? That's where the after party is. We're going to do it. <laughs> Thank you. So, are we out of time? Whatever you want, you want to take uh, we can take just a couple of questions, if you or comments or something, because uh, we usually go for about 90 minutes, but usually when we do live shows, we try to keep it closer to an hour uh, to leave time for discussion with you. The, the, you there's, a, there, there's a conductor who said, apropos Wagner's operas, which are very long, uh, the, the ear cannot absorb what the seat cannot endure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and I realize that these, these, uh, these chairs might be digging a groove into yeah. your posteriors, and so yeah. we, don't want to, we don't want to overdo it here. A groove that will exist forever in the virtual, yeah. in the imagined. But, so. per, but perhaps you have some questions or comments. Questions, comments, concerns. Yes. Do you think the veil is lifting this image, or is it closed? Interesting question. We were just kind, been, we were just kind of talking about this with UAP, weren't we? Yeah, we, yeah. we, we both kind of uh, have been very interested in developments surrounding UAPs, as we're supposed to call them. I still call them UFOs. I can't help it. Uh, recently, um, it's an interesting question because if it turns out, because in a sense, I'm feeling well, a veil is lifting. Some veil is lifting, you know. Uh, curtain number one is lifting. <laughs> um, and how many curtains are there, though? How many were there on Prices Right three? <laughs> <laughs> so number one is lifting. Now, what are we, we going to see? Are we going to see nuts and bolts extraterrestrials who've developed the technology and are coming over here to you know for whatever reason? Um, I've poo-pooed that in the past, but I'm not so sure anymore. Um, if that's what we found, then at least we found fellow beings to. Um, to be baffled at existence with. So maybe that's the best we can hope for. So I, if, the, if the veil is down for us, I suspect the veil is down for them uh, if they're building spaceships and exploring the universe. If, however, things remain as mysterious as they ever were, I mean. Which is entirely possible. Yeah. The tricksterish aspect of the phenomenon, it's all about moving goalposts. It's, it's like Charlie Brown in the football. Yeah. <laughs> Every time you think, like, hey, this time I'm going to kick that football. No, yeah. you're not. It could just keep it, keep it up forever. This could. The endlessly receding goalposts. Could be. I mean, Meyer says the veil lifts for us only when we pass on. And um, that's something he shares with many, many other traditions of thought. So. Uh, I tend to have a kind of allergy to theories of global evolution, of con transformations of consciousness that will suddenly occur in the future, transforming us all. I don't, I can't get behind those for various reasons. Um, I find that they usually end up endorsing or absolutizing a particular viewpoint um, that isn't adequate to the weird weirdness, the weird weirdness of it all. So, um, but maybe the veil is always lifting a little bit. 
Maybe the veil is extremely frayed, like the robes of the, the king in yellow. Well, you know, the thing is, I mean, okay, so I'm a professor and a humanities subject, and so I always, I, I can't help it, I was trained to, th to think in a historicist fashion, think historically. For me, the question becomes a question of a historical period in which we find ourselves, which is modernity. And some people say post-modernity, back of my hand to that, it's modernity. <laughs> Rearranging the deck chairs, I'm calling it post-modernism. Um, that's a, however, that is a private quarrel. I'm not gonna get into that. <laughs> but I think, well, and, I, and I'm speaking of society-wide transformations, and I agree with you. People talk about like a global transformation in consciousness, even though I find it highly attractive and did a lot of research into, you know, 60s counterculture where there was a lot of talk of that sort. At the same time, I can't quite believe it myself. I'm perhaps too much of an academic to think that way, but there is a kind of a more imminent frame wave of thinking of that, it's just sort of like, well, we weren't always modern. There have been period, there, in fact, the kind of weird in the sense of like Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, that kind of weird, um, the weir that weird world is of relatively recent date. And there's something in the modern that tells us always that we are the summit of human development, the unimprovable summit. The only improvement possible is an improvement within uh, the already established limits of modernity. I don't believe that either. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that fails gonna that's pass. A, uh, that does not, <laughs> yes, that, that does not pass the smell test, right? There have been epistems more recent in the West than, than, uh, than all that and, and still existent in the world, just not the weird world where what we were talking about earlier, the allergy of the idea of mind at large, whether it's human mind that gets out somehow in the world or the idea of minds just being out there in the world, like aliens or, or, or ultra terrestrials or whatever. Um, that allergy is pretty recent date. Why do it's I pretty... suppose, and in, in, in my study of history, why would I suppose that that is this adamantine bulletproof inextinguishable and indestructible aspect. Maybe that is just a passing, yeah. a passing thing. Maybe, like all that has to happen for there to be massive epistemic change is for people to accept the possibility of other minds. Well, I mean, and there are plenty of places on earth where that's already, as you were- Exactly, kind of, yeah. It's already happening. I have a friend who lives in Bhutan and he's like, the the issues you're discussing over there simply don't exist here. There are issues, but they're not on the order of whether there's a veil hiding this other world from us. The other world is intermeshed or enmeshed in their daily life. So I guess it depends. I mean, I tend to be pretty individualistic with this sort of thing. It's like yeah. ultimately, where's your veil? Yeah. <laughs> How's your veil You should lift that thing. Look across. Yeah. I yeah, and one thing I, it's, it's funny because I feel like with Myers, he sort of felt like if, if the veil can't part for all, it will part for no one. Yeah, right. And it, if the veil won't part for all, it won't part for me. And you so, need a New York Times headline. Like, yes. Veil lifted. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, that, and so, hence his e emphasis on evidence. 
and which both of us found kind of a little weird, like... Yeah, yeah. Understandable, but weird. Understandable, but yeah, but not quite where we're coming from. And yeah, and part of it is that, I mean, I think this is something that's been part of our show from the beginning, is just my answer to everything is, well, try it and see. Yeah. You know, people are like, well, I have no evidence for there being anything other than material construal. And I remember Alan Shaman once said, well, meditate an hour a day, don't miss a day, and do that for a year. And I guarantee that you will not think the same way in a year that you yeah. do now. Oh, but you don't want to do that. Hmm. Well, that's on you, right? <laughs> And yeah, like, you know, like the kids say, fuck around and find out. <laughs> but I mean that in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. yes. That's kind of what I was trying to grope at earlier with the problem mystery thing. It's that, it's that the, this is a, these are questions on the order of mystery. So they can be satisfied in two ways. They can be satisfied through an event that transforms you personally. And at that point, uh, providing evidence to others becomes really low on your list of priorities at that point. Um, if not only to comfort them, you know, and, and encourage them to maybe embark upon your path and find what you found. There's personal transformation. Now, having said that, um, uh, those of us who have had experiences of that kind and want then to apply the tools of scientific research to try to explore these, these regions, these zones, um, there has been a lot of pressure stopping people from doing that and from asking those questions. So I think that's why I'm like such a big proponent for parapsychology or whatever we wanna call it now of like actual investigation into these areas. Cause I think that it's too easy to say, well, it's all weird, none of it's knowable. Maybe a lot of it is, you know, maybe the aliens have nuts and bolts ships. Maybe we can kind of quantify the spirit world to a certain extent. We don't know that. Um, we haven't done the research. So I, I fully agree with you that um, a recognition of the personal stake that needs to be involved for this sort of uh, interest to develop in the first place, coupled with a willingness as a society to look to those people who've had those experiences and say, we will help you ask those questions, we will ask you our questions, and we will try to figure this out together. I think that would be an ideal scenario for going forward with these, uh, these fields of inquiry. I would just like to put, I, like, I would just like to, uh... Uh, put in a comment to express my spleen, my annoyance. It's something I see all the time in, in the academic humanities, presumably elsewhere in academia, um, where there are certain topics on which it is believed, at least in a sort of vernacular way, that your qualification to talk in a proper and sober-sided way is precisely that you have no personal experience with it. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I once no bias. I mean, I, I once I once attended uh, a, a talk um, by a an 
a, a humanities researcher, I'm being super vague because this is a perfectly wonderful person and I don't want them to feel called out if they ever listen to this episode, but um, I saw a humanities researcher who was talking about seances and uh, talking about, um, you know, just, I don't know, the use of music and, and, and seances. And afterwards, somebody was like, well, have you participated in seance in the person, in the person who gave the presentation? I was like, oh, no, certainly not. That would imperil my objectivity. <laughs> and I was like, man, this is insane. Like, that, that you, what you, you believe that the thing that qualifies you to talk about this is that you have never had an experience with it. Nuts. Anyway, yeah, I saw a hand over here. Sure. Um, and guy talks about people who won't believe that they see a UFO unless it lands on the White House lawn, and of course they won't believe even then. Um, I'm sure you've heard, but there was a whistleblower that recently came forward. Oh, yeah. Saying, yeah NASA or some other agency, I'm not even sure it's NASA, but then the U.S. government has discovered non-human but humanoid breeding and possibly of an extraterrestrial origin. What do you two make of that in relation to this subject? Oh, we're, we're very interested in that question. Yeah. We're following it's something we've been discussing mostly offline. We haven't done too many shows on UFOs because we we're very careful <laughs> with this topic. Yeah. Um, There's first, something yeah. about the UFO topic that is uh, quicksand. As another another trope of TV from my childhood, people were always getting sucked into quicksand box <laughs> when I was a kid. Fortunately, uh, there, was, there was always a vine nearby. To yes. <laughs> That's right, that's right, yeah. Uh, and, and UAP or UFOs, whatever we want to call it, seems to be that kind of topic. And so, yeah, we, 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 we tread carefully, but we think about this a lot. Like, I listened to the co congressional hearing on UAP in the car on the way up to Lilydale. Um, so... I, I, you know, I'm some, I, I have had the fortune of seeing uh, a UFO I had a, like a, a kind of mass sighting, me and several of my uh, classmates when I was in the seventh grade. And so for me, it's always felt very personal. I saw it, so I, I'm not like, I don't have a dog in the race, so to speak. <laughs> like, I feel like, yeah, there's something out there. Um, I am very curious. I've always been leaning, I've always lent a little bit on the nuts and bolts side, because if you know the, the, the UFO discourse, it's basically split between uh, two major camps. One camp is the nuts and bolts camp. They believe that these are actual extraterrestrial technologies built by non-human species of other planets, blah, blah, blah. And another camp is this is all manifestations of consciousness, right? That, that would be the... And then some, there's, there's a middle camp, which I've always kind of identified with, which uh, these are what we used to call fairies, and now we call them uh, extraterrestrials. And there are other beings that are part of the complex that is the earth of which we can only see a part of it but they're part of this place and they're they're uh and i still think that that's that would be where i would put my money if i had to place a bet now having said that these recent allegations uh, unless you unless you decide and some people believe this that this is all psyops and this is all propaganda of some sort on the government's part um i believe that the nuts and bolts theory is gaining at least for me, it's gaining credence. It's becoming yeah. more and more plausible. Yeah. What do you mean of the reaction or lack of reaction? Ugh, like, it's, yeah. It's crazy. Like, 
Okay, yeah. But yeah. I just, it's so strange. I'm a journalist. And all the journalists are looking at each other like, can we cover this? Can we write about this? Like, yeah. Are we allowed to believe this? And it's like right there in the New York Times, it's right there in the National Union. Like, no one really seems no. to be talking about it. I think it's something on. You know, I think it's some, It's like what Phil was saying. It is a direct challenge to modernity, in the sense it's a direct challenge to what Charles Taylor calls our exclusive humanism. Uh, well, if we suddenly have to share the universe with other beings that match us in intelligence or exceed us in intelligence, and of a, of a type of intelligence that we identify with, you know, because we know that whales have intelligence, all kinds. You know, we're coming to grips with. Um, the multiplicity of intelligence already, but this is t maybe too much, and I think that people are just extremely wary about it, and I think a lot of people just don't want to think about it. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's, a, it's what, speaking of veils, um, I think it's in uh, this old this role-playing game from the 1990s called Changeling the Dreaming. Any role-playing game for people here? No, am I the only one? Okay. Um, so, yeah. The, in this game, there was a, um, uh, a concept called, I believe it was called the veil. It's basically the humans have uh, an instinct to look away when they see something incredible. And I will tell you a, a, an aspect or an element of that encounter I had when I was in the seventh grade is I was trying to get my teacher to look out at the ship we were all seeing or whatever it was we were seeing up in the sky, and he wouldn't look. I saw him kind of glance over, then he would, he would just look at us and smile and shake his head. And we're like 20 kids going, look outside, and he would not look. Uh, my mother had a, a UFO sighting where the same thing happened. She was with a friend of, our, of hers, um, and her friend wouldn't look. So I think there's something in us. We know much more than we think we know, and there's reasons that we don't know we know, <laughs> and we don't want to look. Uh, I, think that the, I think that the effect will be seismic when it, we finally have no choice but to accept this it. Is, this is something that interests me generally, is the idea that there can be an idea so big and so ill-fitting to the setup of your mind that to let it in feels like self-destruction, like, like the possibility of self-annihilation. There's a story that uh, Gunther Schuller, who's an American composer who worked a lot with jazz musicians, he's into third stream jazz, if anybody knows what that is. Um, he worked a lot with the free jazz sa alto saxophonist Ornette Coleman. Now, Coleman was an interesting cat because he was in a, uh, he developed in relative isolation he started off playing blues in Texas. He was like a bluesman, but he started developing his own music theory, music theoretical ideas, and he created a system he called harmelotics. And to this day, nobody can really agree what he meant by harmelotics. It was a system that was fully realized in his mind. It, led to a very individual, replicable style. It was not just random crap he was playing, which he was accused of when he first came on the scene in the late 50s. It was this very, com he emerged on the scene with this very complete musical style that grew from an understanding of music, a very profound understanding of music that was very personal to him. Idiosyncratic. Yeah. It, very idiosyncratic. It was as if he had like this kind of, he, he had made uh, like a crystalline cube of music in his mind. The problem is that none of that stuff really lined up with any conventional music theory. And so even trying to read music for him was extremely difficult because he somehow had 
started in on like the fundamental axioms of his musical system already were at variance with notated music. And so Scholler gave him music lessons. Like Ornette Coleman wanted to learn how to be a properly, uh, I don't know, to have treated. <laughs> yeah, to have mu conventional music theory. And Scholler told the story of how he would come over, every, Ornette Coleman would come over every week and then, um, and, he, and he would try to teach him stuff and he just kept coming up against this epistemic limit, like a, a kind of solid wall, like where they couldn't agree on the most basic concepts of music theory until one day, he, Scholler said something and Coleman was like, wait a minute, so you mean blah, like, I don't know what it was. And Scholler's like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I mean. And Scholler said that there was this indescribable look of horror on Coleman's face. You, I always imagine it's like the face of one of those hapless characters in a Lovecraft story, when right. they finally see the true reality of whatever. Um, and apparently he turned white as a sheet, ran to the bathroom and vomited. And he came out of the bathroom, he was like, I can't come back here ever. And that was the last lesson. And uh, that's a story that Ethan Iverson tells on his blog, Do the Math. Um, and that always struck me as a really amazing story because I think it shows, it's a little bit like that Monty Python joke about the, like, you know, the British military making a joke that would kill the Nazis. Yeah. Like a joke that would be so funny. It would, it's like the idea, like there might be some ideas that yeah. if you took them in, would destroy you. That might be possible. And I think a lot of people feel almost like a proximity alert. Like, I am always struck by that detail of your story. That guy just won't look at the UFO. And you're like, look, look. And he's just like smiling vacantly at you. Yeah. Because on some level, it's just like there's a tilt warning in his brain. It's just like, don't yeah. look at that thing. I don't know if we're going to survive that. Yeah. And yet, in his doing that, he's manifestly recognizing yes. the magnitude of what's there. So it's, it's the mind is very strange. Myers was really good uh, in talking about how the mind is split in different ways and we have different personalities inhabiting the same self. And um, I guess that we just have to wait for enough people to be ready, you know. Um, it's, but you're a journalist, so you can start spreading the word and changing things. Thank you. Journey of a um, thousand miles begins we'll take, with a single step. We'll take two more. Uh, oh, we got one, two. Oh, God, we've got lots. Um, well, what time is it? It's like so eight, 17 minutes till 10. Okay, well, let's, we'll take a few more. So, um, Bob? Yeah, we're, uh, while we're on the subject of art again, um, the part of it that really stayed with me was the idea of the past being photographed. And more importantly than that idea, the feeling of playing a classical piece and feeling like, I know this is right. Now, we associated that thus far with this idea that this is part of you reaching into an existing past and grabbing it. You said it's only the first phase. Yeah. Would it be plausible, because this is a feeling I have in working with things that are of that magnitude, that every instance of this thing being represented, whether it's like Wagner being played again or Macbeth being played in by different actors, when it is played in that spirit, even the original work itself was not the original photograph, but I guess in a 
pseudo-platonic way would be all of them are actually representing a form yeah. which the author has downloaded into a tangible form and now you get to kind of wear that yeah. and present yeah. it. Yeah, I dig I like that. that. Yeah, I, we've had discussions about that. Um, yeah. It's a really interesting question. Um, like we did a, I did a Macbeth series uh, earlier this year. Um, I think some of you were there. Thank you for coming. Uh, and I, during those two months, I lived in that play. I was just in it. Uh, it was a world. And the, it wasn't just the text. It was a world that the text gave me access to. It was much bigger. You know, there were moments where I was like, oh, well, I'll just leave, uh, uh, you know, the castle and go wandering what's over there. <laughs> and it, there was much, you could go right off the page and explore other parts of this world. There was granularity to it. So I, I tend to, to think in those terms that uh, artworks are not so much self-contained platonic ideals in themselves or worlds in themselves, but they are like <clears throat> passcodes or ciphers that give us access to imaginal worlds. Yeah, so I, I would think you, like that. You've given me an opportunity to read the passage that I didn't have at hand before from Franklin Trickia. Um, I, I do want to read this because this is an expression of pedagogy that to me is it's paradise. This is, what I, this is how this to me is the happiest I am when I'm teaching, is what he describes here. And it has something, to, and it has everything to do with what we're talking about with this idea of realizing uh, a form uh, that is contingently embodied, perhaps even in the original artwork that I'm performing in the Wagner opera or whatever. This is um, Lintrichia talking about his classes as a rhapsode. Behind closed doors with only undergraduates in attendance, I become something of a rhapsode. As Plato says in the Ion, rhapsodes are enthusiasts. We're out of our minds. Like all rhapsodes, I like to recite from the text. I tell my students that in a true recitation we're possessed, we are the medium for the writer's voice. I speak the text as the writer would speak it. This is my radical and unverifiable claim. And the phrases and sentences flow out of me as they flowed from him in the process of creating the text. The writer flows into me and out of me, my mouth, his exit into our world. Doesn't that sound like mediumship? Yeah. He even says medium. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like when you are deeply engrossed in an artwork, who's the medium here? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, like Schwantz's butterfly, did I, am I a man dreaming yeah. of butterflies? The butterfly dreaming of the Schwantz. Yeah. Communion. Yeah, exactly. Awesome question. Thank you. Um, I think I saw you next. Yeah, so please. Um, I just want to go back to uh, Coleman and that discussion made me think of your episode on Sun Hall and how it is. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. 
Yeah, we talk about that sometimes on the show. We talk about it specifically, I think, or more, more often in uh, terms of like spiritual practice because as I often like to say, there is no informed consent to spiritual practice. No informed consent to meditation, no informed consent to prayer, no con certainly no informed consent to magic. Um, and I think we could expand that and say there's no informed consent to art. Uh, is something Ample proof of that? Yeah, <laughs> in the history of art. And we, I mean, I mentioned Kerouac earlier, and mm, yeah, there's there's an example right there. Um, he kept it real. Yeah. Um, and I always feel torn because I'm an educator. I am entrusted with the minds and well-beings, uh, to some extent, of young people, young, at least persons younger than myself. It's not saying much. And I feel an obligation, a duty, uh, to make it a reasonably safe kind of experience, right? There's a sort of fictional trope of the teacher who doesn't. And where things, and like you mentioned, uh, The Secret History by Donna yeah. Tartt, which is like a locus classicus of this trope. What, what happens when the professor uh, removes all the brakes, uh, removes all, the, all the, the guardrails, all the safety, you know, takes out the seatbelts. Um, I can't do that. That's not, that's, that's not cool, right? Uh, and so I can't be telling people, I, I just can't. And also, quite apart from my ethos as, an, as a teacher, it's also as a Buddhist, like I can't enjoin self-destruction. I am on the si side of life against death. That's very important to me. But a lot of great art comes out of self-destruction. <laughs> and, yet, and, and yet, where would art be without death? Yeah. Right? So. Yeah, swim at your own risk. But, you know, I, I totally agree with you on everything you're saying, but at the same time, the, the history of art is strewn with tears, you know? Uh, and there's a risk you take um, in, in individuating in those modes. And hopefully, I guess the advice I would give uh, is to have a spiritual practice, a religious practice, something that's anchored, something that's, you didn't cobble together on your own, but you're participating in something, a, a sangha, a community, a church, a something that can anchor you um, uh, so that you, you have a safe harbor. And you'll be surprised. Um, I'm using you abstractly because you may very well have your own spiritual <laughs> practice, but one would be surprised at how crazy, decadent, eldritch, and weird you can get when you have a safe harbor, you know? Yeah. Um, I was like, Shakespeare to me is the, my, one of my late, latest, latest or most recent obsessions, and what I marvel with Shakespeare is his ability to go deep, deep, deep into the mysteries, into the weirdness of things, and yet be the most affable, gentle, generous soul in London in his time. You know, a guy you want to have a, 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 a pint of ale or mead with, you know? Um, so it's not impossible to be a good person and a good artist, but it's work. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. So I wanted to just pick up kind of 
with what Wabak was referencing, this last thing of uh, performing a piece of music that also struck me and getting a sense of, you know, the original intention or feeling that original intention, embodying that. That kind of, just like brought me back to how you opened with Myers speaking about his experiences with the Greeks. And I imagined that he got to that moment from what, from what you were saying of like, oh, I understand what this person in this Greek tragedy felt, or the author of this felt, or what this god was performing in this instance. Um, and I kind of, if that's true, and he did get to that point, and he experienced that elation that you were speaking about, with that sense of knowing or feeling, aha, this is it. He then dropped out of that, in your story, into Christianity, and dropped out of that again. And I was just kind of wanted to give you another shot at what makes one drop out of that experience instead of just going back into it and seek facts or objective data. Um, I knew you explored this, and just kind of like, it struck me. That's, well, that's a well-framed question. Yeah. Thank you for asking it, because it really allows us to sharpen, sharpen it up on, on that point. There's a nice uh, quote by, um, oh, I don't have it here, G.K. Chesterton, this book's, in this book, Orthodoxy, he says, at one point, he's kind of um, questioning the common uh, idea that artists tend to go, tend to lose their minds, that artists tend to suffer from mental illness and stuff. And he says, no, if you want to look, the real threats to mental illness aren't among artists, but among, amongst logicians, mathemat mathematicians, chess champions, people who think in hyper-rational modalities. And um, the way he puts it is, I can't, I'm trying to remember the quote, it's like, please. Yeah, the poet, the poet is happy to just, you know, put his, dwell, head in the put his head in the heavens. The logician tries to put the heavens in his head, and it's his head that splits. Yeah, so, so um, I think that with Myers, we have very interesting, uh, uh, almost uh, schizoid, I'm using the word purely descriptively, example of, of a man of his age, like of exemplifying two extremes of the Victorian era. A poet who's also hyper-logical, or hyper, um, uh, who really believes that you can get strong, solid, final, logical answers. So that's what I was trying to get at with mis tr turning mysteries into problems. Yes because you can't turn a mystery into a problem. It's the equivalent of trying to fit the heaven in your head, uh, the heavens in your head. And so I think that there's a, 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 a friction or a conflict within Myers that makes him so generative and so interesting as a thinker, but also I think my, you know, for me it's something that I find myself bouncing off of. Yeah. Does that answer, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 this is not, my answer is, is not very intellectually sophisticated. It's just he feels like a certain kind of friend that I've had in the past where I just want to say, like, would you just mellow out? Like, <laughs> relax. <laughs> relax, yeah. but, you know, he, but you know he's yeah. not going to because he's got this monkey on his back. Are you sure your mom didn't just say that Mole, the mole went to mole heaven. <laughs> it's just as plausible, you know. Like, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, thank you. 
Um, I know you've had your hands up. I completely agree. Yeah. I think a lot of the, the industrialization of science in the 20th century had a lot to do. There's a great book about physics, so it doesn't touch on these topics, but by Adam Becker, it's called What is Real, in, where, in which he questions the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics and basically says that one of the reasons why we got stuck with what he considers to be an inadequate theory or, or just a kind of like placeholder theory, really, uh, compromise between um, different camps at the time that were, is because, well, one of the reasons is because science, uh, physics got industrialized. It got turned into a weapons-making discipline. Yeah. And so the time for theory was over after the Second World War. And for, for great ideas to emerge, you need space for theory. You know, what scientists call theory, what artists call dreaming, it's the same thing. Hypothesis formation is a form of dreaming. It's a form of imaginal dreaming. And it seems like that's not really emphasized in, in educational programs within the sciences these days at all. They don't tell you that you're, when you're making a hypothesis, you're literally exploring the imaginal world and coming up with possibilities, ex perceiving possibilities that haven't yet been um, confirmed or tested. They basically, you're, there's actually, we, we just went to another conference where uh, there's a sociologist there whose work, James Evans, uh, he's, his AI, project is able to write out the abstract of next year's science papers before and with great accuracy. So that's where, yeah, that tells us where we're at with science. We're just like dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Yes, sir. <laughs> Chad GPT is heaven. I thought you were going to say depends on what it's done. Yeah. All I know is that, um, uh, actually, yeah, I've got lots of thoughts on that. We'll save it. <laughs> I think we should probably. Yeah, it yeah. It's, it's 10 o'clock or yeah. one minute till 10. It's yeah. probably so thank you so time. much, everyone. It's been great. Thank you.
If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.